Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed episode 466 is recorded live October 8th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We're joining me this week. We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and we have had frost on the pumpkins, so uh, it's getting oh. to be that time of year. It So you really, we really did have frost? I, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. We actually had sleet at the airport three days ago, I think it was. I'm I'm all for it if it kills mosquitoes and ticks. I haven't noticed any mosquitoes, but let me tell you, I walked up on the bluffs just to take some pictures a couple of weeks ago at night. Uh-huh. Those suckers were all over me. <laughs> it it's hasn't like, been a not... bad mosquito season, but like yeah, there you well, certain spots you can really yeah, get there surrounded. Are, there are definitely people that attract the mosquitoes more than others. So Mac, I definitely want to hang around with you because it sounds like you are one of those attractors. Um, my Amy's the same way. You know, I love going with Amy because it's like the bugs, she tastes a lot better than me. So, yeah, you must you know what, people, you, they taste better. You know what attracts mosquitoes, don't you? It's CO2. Your All exhalation. Right. So I'm oh. just a heavy breather. What can they say? Yeah, so yeah. Just, just breathe more shallow, you know? I mean, all the diving you do, you ought to have a real low sac rate. Come on. I mean, can't see you being a, a heavy breather. As I get older, I am. Hmm. These gals are kicking my butt when we're diving. I come back with, you know, minus two pounds. And Deb will say, oh, I got 1,700. Well, say the, what? They, they, also, they also weigh like 87 pounds. What are you talking about? Women <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just have natural advantage when it comes to air, though. You know, it's that it's less muscle mass. It's just not It's not just the body size. It's the muscle mass that makes a difference there. I mean, Amy is like running neck and neck with me, and I've got um, – I, I may hit 800 dives this year, and uh, Amy has got. Uh, oh, she she just broke 100 last week, well, two weeks ago. So, oh, uh, and she's wow. right about even with me on air consumption. So, yeah. Well, and that other voice you hear is Kevin Ailes. How you doing tonight, Kevin? Darren, I am most excellent. Thank you for having me on. Good, good to be joining you and uh, Mac on the program here. Sorry about my hiatus briefly there, but I'm back and running with the show. It, it's not like uh, work's been busy or anything. <laughs> oh, don't get me <laughs> going on work. But we, we 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 had our piss and moan session about work before uh, in the pre pre show chat there. So uh, yeah, yeah. So if you if you if you really want to listen to us complain, that's when that's when all the good complaining happens. And the yeah. alter the alternate podcast we could be hosting. Uh, yeah, all, all, all the all the conspiracy theory and all the all the political stuff we don't want to bring in the podcast here, but. Well, I, as I tell my daughter, it's not a conspiracy theory if it's true. Yeah. Now, where's where's become true? Yeah. See, and and I'm upset that being skeptical, skeptical, is uh, considered a conspiracy. Since when should you trust everything that somebody says to you? So. 
since, since the evening news told you to, since you read it on Facebook, yeah. since you read it on the internet, it's that's got to be true. If it's on the internet, it's true. Yeah, undoubtedly. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Karen who showed up. I haven't seen Eric and Derek yet, but uh, hopefully they'll they'll come in. Either that, or they're getting some diving in, which counts as an excused absence. Time changer in Australia. Oh, did they? Yes. Ah. We got one coming up. I don't remember if it's an hour up or down, but there's a time change last week. Well, doesn't just like time go in reverse anyway? I don't know. I keep trying to get the friend of mine who's in advance of us to give me the numbers for the lottery, but he never gives them to me. Mm -hmm. Hold out. You just got to split them with him. That will give him some motivation. Works for me. I wish it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if it worked just that once, way, just once. Yes. I'm not biggie. Yeah. Karen's been typing and typing and typing. She, she's got some kind of psaltery mark. I'm sure. Oh, Karen was at Gilboa. Good, good yeah. for you. Oh, yeah. That's right. She went up there for the yeah. meet, meet and greet thing or the end of the year meet and yeah, greet. Yeah, the wrecking crew, Great yes. Lakes wrecking crew uh, at Gilboa. What's uh, well, the visibility the... up there, Karen? I'm yeah. Some of the pictures look good. And I haven't done one of those in two years. we got to get back out there. Yeah. I, I keep saying it every year, and maybe this is the year where I, I need to, I just need to make a calendar and get it to go. This may be the year, actually. Well, well, that's going on in the chat room. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Um, this first one is just a comment from Undercurrent. They're saying, Tick a box and save a life. 22 people die every day in the United States waiting for a kidney transplant. Most waiting seven to nine years. For some, this may be an unpleasant subject, but thousands of people could live many years if they could get the organs of a healthy deceased person. Divers are generally healthy folks who, if unfortunately have a fatal diving accident, would enable others to carry on. Uh, So what they're saying is that they want people to uh, consider donating organs and they've got a link which we will share in the show notes which tells you more information here in michigan uh, when you get your driver's license you've got something on the back and you can say your organ donor and it's always a good idea if you're going to be an organ donor let your family know you've done that so when the time comes there's not any problems or delays that can be caused by a misunderstanding yeah i think uh, you've got to I'm, have... all, I'm all for that because my sister had a transplant my her son had a transplant and a couple of those got to the point that it was getting really iffy if they did not get it mm-hmm. so yeah. i appreciate that i'm on that list obviously but uh hey you're dead yeah. let them use what you have that's that's why i got my you want my corneas you want this that and the other you know take your pick the rest yeah. is going to be burned so do it yeah but most but most of you guys have heard me enough on the podcast that I don't think anybody wants my liver. So, Yeah. Well, th- they'll just study it. They'll go, <laughs> look, he lived eight years past uh, life expectancy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they just want my brain. They want to figure out how the hell did he work? Mine, they're going to have mine next to a squirrel, and they say, which is which? You decide. Uh, there's a lot to say. And that drug. <laughs> Uh, the Georgia shipwreck uh, has been delayed again. I thought it was delayed until spring, but it sounds like that 
wasn't a delay, but now it's delayed. It says the removal of the Georgia shipwreck delayed over an anchor issue. An engineering problem has forced another delay before salvage crews can start removing an overturned cargo ship that's been partially submerged onto Georgia coast for more than a year, officials said Wednesday. Multi-agency command overseeing the salvage of the South Korean ship Golden Ray had hoped to start cutting the giant vessel apart in early October. The command released a statement Wednesday saying that it would be several weeks more before crews can begin to dismantle the ship. That's because engineers have to troubleshoot a problem with the anchoring system that was designed to steady the towering floating crane that will be used to slice the 656-foot or 200-meter ship into giant chunks. One of the five anchors failed to strength test to prove it could hold against the required tonnage, says Coast Guard Petty Officer 2nd Class Michael Himes, a command spokesman. After delay means cutting won't start until at least November, Himes said he didn't know. Monitoring assessment shows the wreck is still intact and it's still stable. There's been no emergency environmental impact. The Golden Ray capsized on September 8th, 2019 off the Simmons Island, about 70 miles or 200 uh, kilometers south of Savannah. The ship had just left the port of Brunswick with 4,200 automobiles on its cargo deck. The vehicle remains on board. Experts decided the ship is too badly damaged to remove intact and said came up with a plan to slice in eight massive pieces for removal by barge. Uh, the Coast Guard held hearings on the issue of the shipwreck last month, and an expert concluded the Golden Ray had tipped over because of unstable loading had left its center of gravity too high. Coast Guard Lieutenant Ian Avet said the ship lacked enough water in its ballast tanks used to add weight to the bottom of the vessel to offset that of the vehicles on its cargo deck above. Which, that makes sense. Uh, it, it's When we talked about this before, they hadn't come up with the final route. Uh, ruling and there's a, still a few more days of testimony to go in but that's what it sounded like it, it'd be interesting to see was it human error uh, were they trusting too much in some software are you talking about why it sank yes why it kept, why oh, it kept it, the uh, coast guard final review on that said they failed to add the ballast to the bottom of the tanks and had too much weight top side or you know, in the middle. Mm-hmm. So when it rolled, since it didn't have any ballast at the bottom, it rolled over. So, well, why would they want to add ballast? They could just put more, more cars on it that way. More weight. Yeah. More they had to add the cars at the bottom where they didn't yeah, I, have. I, I realized so they didn't that. have cars at the bottom. Yeah. Or anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but lack of ballast just means more cargo. So keep unloading up, fill it up, fill yeah. it up. And, and, and thanks for that that photo, Mac. I see that you've got uh, that crane. Yeah, because the other part you're gonna your next one it talks uh-huh. about that crane and the fabrication. So I went over and found what it looked like because their picture sucked. Yeah, That's freaking huge. Yeah, I, I and the only reason I, I'm not going to read the article because the article is going on about other stuff which uh, I, I really didn't care about. But I looked at that and that first. I saw that it was a crane and, and I'm like, that does, what's that look like? But now you show the other photo and that makes sense. But a crane yeah. that bent over that you can lift a drilling platform out of the water. That is a crane. <laughs> right. And they're talking about the anchors that support the barges so they can then pull that up. Cause I thought they were talking about something totally different until I got this picture. Yeah, that's why that's why I'm glad you're you're on tonight because with your experience with water work, I was wondering 
what were they talking about with that anchor system? Was it that, to me, add more anchor? Uh, but was this, this appears that they, was, would it be the bottom? Because they had, what, four anchors, and they said one of the anchors didn't pass their test. So were they put the anchor in, and then they would do a stress test to see if it would hold and it didn't hold? That's correct. So, so at that point, couldn't you just do another anchor, or is it all their I, math change? I thought I thought it was something with the also not just that didn't hold, but it broke. Well, it said broke, but that's why I'm like, you know, because I'm picturing this anchor. It's like if you or I stand next to the anchor, we're like a, just nothing. That's what I'm picturing these anchors. You know, pick, picture a big Navy anchor, and it's bigger than that. Yeah, but I doubt they're using, you know, like a neighbor anchor. They got this stuff is some kind of embedded in the bottom, too. It's might be pilings they've driven the bottom, too. It's not just simply gravity kind of anchor. Yeah, so it's one of the five anchors failed the strength test to prove it could hold against the required tonnage. So one of the five. So that's probably what they got to do. They got to redo the, the math to figure out what it's going to take. Yeah, it could be a matter of the, just the bottom there is not good. Well, anchor, all kinds of possibilities. Lots of variables. Yeah. yeah. And then it could be that maybe the solution is another anchor, but it's not like you've got whatever the anchoring system is, as, as another one hanging around. 4,500 cars. Yeah. And I'm sure, and I'm sure the other part of it could be who's paying for this extra anchoring anchor point. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, hey, my contract only said five anchors. Yeah, it's not my fault. The bottom silt. Well, once you once you bid on the contract, though, and you agree that you're the guy that's going to raise it, it's you're responsible for fulfillment of the contract. Yeah, I think there's some of that, but I I think if you've got a, a, a unified command who ultimately gets to make the decision, and they say no, your plan isn't good enough then I think that's when the negotiation starts. Cause then you're like, I say it is, and I'm willing to take the risk to go and do it. And you're saying it's not. Yeah. Again, we got lots of variables and we're just, none of us are real experts on this. I know Mac no more than, more than we know on it there, but uh, it's still going to be all kinds of legal aspect to it. And <laughs> yeah, it's quite a complicated deal. I'm sure. As a side note, that's two, 240 foot tall gantries. Joined together by a twin 300 foot by 72 foot barges. So you look at that, you don't realize that's big as a football field. No, because that that, cause that that photo, it makes it look, this looks more like a carnival ride, like the Ferris wheel. Right. You know, it's like, oh, it's big, but it's not that big. But when you see. Ride. Yeah, I'd, I'd do that. Yeah. And it talked about the vessel is gripped with class 3DP system consisting of four thousand horsepower thrusters each and each barge to help it maneuver on site now thousand pound thruster that's pretty pretty good yeah <laughs> and it's a whole station in any water depth over 35 feet and it's uh the bb 10,000 is four 2,000 ton heavy lift blocks or paired with custom engineered 400 ton hydraulic winches that can be operated independently or synchronized. So is how this going to work? Is this going to straddle the wreck and then they cut a chunk off? And then when the chunk gets cut off, this lifts it and then sets it on a barge. 
That's my understanding, but I don't know how it lifts and put it on a barge or what barge. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure as this advances, we'll we'll get some more photos. But it is awful pretty. I'll tell you, there's an In, awful lot of coin going into this operation here. Oh, yeah. you betcha! It's got real deep pockets. <clears throat> yeah, there, there there's some uh, boat captain who's now hoping that he can get a job, uh, you know, cleaning the decks. Well, I tell you what, this would be ideal if you're trying to bring up a submarine or something. This yeah. was oh man, this would do it. Uh huh. Where's Howard Hughes when you need him? <laughs> uh, Indonesia. Yep. Steel hole Indonesia. Freighter. What do you want to bring up? They would do it. Yeah. Indonesia adopts guidelines to make dive safer during the pandemic. A tourism and creative economy minister launched on Friday a guidebook for dive operators on how they continue business safely under the health protocols during the COVID-19 pandemic. Authored by professional divers with advances, advices from Global Divers Association health officials, the 35-page book details what operators must or must not do in arranging recreational dive across the archipelago. While diving communities all over the world have a reputation for the highest safety standards, even without a pandemic, we must raise the bar if we want to keep the business staying afloat, said Ricky Pesk. Was that Pesk? Unfortunate name. Uh, the ministry expert for the digital and creative economy industry told a conference in the capital himself, a certified diver. Ricky has said the government is very serious in implementing high diving safety standards because the country is among the world's biggest dive spots at home. The 65% of the so-called coral triangle, a large area of the tropical marine waters encompassing six countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific the triangular area has the world's biggest shallow water coral species, a favorite spot for global divers. Ricky said the new dive guidelines were the implementation of the ministry's cardinal virtues to bring recovery to the tourism industry, namely cleanliness, health, safety, environmental sustainability. The guidelines were welcomed by William Zilf, president and CEO of Divers Alert Network, Dan, global organization that promotes scuba diving safety with around 2 million members worldwide. In fact, many parts of the guidelines have been based on science-based recommendations and expertise from Dan. After months of being stuck home due to the global travel restrictions, divers are equal to go back in the water and many Indonesian tops their list. He thanked the Indonesian government for making efforts to improve diving safety measures in accordance with the global standard. Dan is pleased to join you in this effort. We congratulate the Ministry of Tourism and Creative Economy for completing the technical guidelines for divers. These guidelines are guaranteed that the necessary safety precautions are being followed. We are honored to help shape the future of diving safety in Indonesia to further enhance Indonesia's position as a safe diving destination. The book provides step-by-step instructions for dive operators to ensure physical distancing, screen eligible participants, as well as technical procedures and disinfecting scuba equipment. I can say you will not contract COVID from others while underwater, although there's no scientific research on it yet said co-author Daniel uh, Carnegie or Carnegie told the conference. The problem is that when you're on the surface, the handbook requires divers to produce a valid coronavirus free certificate and to pass body temperature checks. They must also fill a diver medical clearance issued by Dan. I wonder what a valid coronavirus free certificate is. Does that mean you have to have the test? I have not a clue. 
Well, even, oh, if you Daniel... have the, even if you have the test, they're still saying you can recontract it. And just, there's just no real clear-cut answer on that one. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the certificate uh, does. Um, the temperature check, I mean, we do the same thing at work. When we come in, you get a temperature check. But we've yet to have anybody get flagged by the temperature check. Uh, they first must pass the medical checkup in the country of origin before coming here and also must pass screening at the airport upon arrival to destination. We don't need to gather them for another checkup. Otherwise, they'll be exposed to transmission. We instead must avoid creating a crowd. Um, and then they go up, uh, they go on in the article and say all the sites that are back open. Uh, We've limited the number of divers to 53, but more than 100 people immediately registered themselves, including people from Los Angeles, talking about some of the dive sites. So, But they didn't provide a link to the document. Is this a secret document that we can't see? Uh, I'm looking it up even as we speak. <laughs> yeah, because it's a 35-page document. You would think that it would be publicly available uh, unless they contracted this with Dan and said, hey, if, will you write this for us? Yeah, I've not been able to to get that. Yeah, I'm 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 guessing not. it's it's probably not publicly available uh, unless you, you you search the correct internet, then you might be able to find it. Uh, and then this uh, website, GreatLakesNow.org, I had an interesting article, and I'm not going to really read the article in detail unless uh, somebody found something on it because it, it was kind of all over the place, but there was a lot of depth to it. So they went and they talked about uh, specific wrecks uh, and just information on it. So they had the uh, Fleet Wing, which is at 25 feet out of Lake Michigan. They talked about the Frank O'Connor at 70 feet, uh, the E.R. Williams. Some, it does have some cool video of a very aggressive bass coming after the cameraman. It's kind of cool to watch. <laughs> yeah, and then they had the William P. Rend. But it says things that that we've all uh, known is that the uh, fish love wrecks. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, it depends upon the species, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. we, I can I can count the number of times I've seen a you know a salmon or a trout on a on a wreck. I, I can count that on one hand. But then, as far as bass and bluegills, yeah, the, the, mm -hmm. those the the, the the schooling fish do like uh, shipwrecks. Yeah. yeah, if if your goal is to not be eaten, then uh, you, you may like a shipwreck. Lots of cover down there, so it it is, you know, desirable for the smaller fish. Of course, the the, the, the burbot like them too, mm -hmm. gobies. But um, you know, your larger sport fish, not so much. I don't think I've ever seen a pike on a shipwreck. No, but, I've never seen a pike out there. I've never seen, like you said, a salmon. I don't think I've ever seen a salmon on one. You know, uh, a lot, your bass do like them. You know, I know there's one over the uh, the Henry Court off the Muskegon Pier. Uh, has a lot of bass, or a lot of really old, gnarly-looking bass on that one. <laughs> yeah, um, and and when when the school when the fish are uh, spawning, they all gravitate towards the wrecks and like the uh, oh the salvor again out of Muskegon. Uh, I've seen some monster sheepshead on that one. It's kind of weird that actually will follow you around. It's kind of, but <laughs> um, yeah. As far as sport fish, though, not so much. I did pick something up out of the article they had on the fleet wing. Uh, towards the end of it, they said a few years back, Neptune Dive Club members threw forty dollars worth of gold coins on the wreck site as part of a charity fundraiser treasure hunt. 
only three dollars were recovered during the event. So they say that there's at least thirty-seven dollars uh, worth of gold out there. Yeah, but those might be really small gold coins. Those be only worth thirty-seven dollars. I mean, well, I, I'm I'm picturing they were doing like uh, dollars, like uh, oh, what's what's okay. what's the the new dollar coin? Well, it's not the Susan B. Anthony, but it's another one. Which it tells you how well, how well that's going over if you can't think of the name of it. Gold Golden Eagles is that what they're calling them? Or I don't know. Not not the ones that's an ounce of gold. That's a that's a different one. But uh, it, it's worth a it's worth a read. But I was kind of surprised about this website. I'm I'm sure I had come across it before, uh, but they had quite a bit on uh, Great Lake issues. So if you like different articles about the water and what's going on, that's certainly a good resource. And then finally, uh, swimming squid robot looks absolutely amazing. A team of engineers, at the University of California, San Diego, built a squid robot that can propel it through the water untethered, just like the real thing. Essentially, we, we uh, recreated all the key features that squids use for high-speed swimming. Michael T. Tolley co-authored a paper published in the Journal of Bioinspiration and Biomimetics last month. This is the first untethered robot that can generate jet pulses in a rapid locomotion like the squid and can achieve these jet pulses by changing its body shape, which improves swimming efficiency. And they talk about squids are some of the fastest swimmers in the ocean. Uh, they generate special water jets by sucking in and expelling water through contractions of muscle or sac to propel themselves through the water. The robot carries its own power source and is made out of a soft acrylic polymer and a few rigid 3D printed parts. It can also be outfitted with a sensor and a camera for exploring underwater worlds. The intent of the soft robot is to ensure the underwater life is protected from bumps and scrapes. The team was even able to steer around a large aquarium among live fish and coral. The next step is to improve the robot's efficiency by reworking the nozzles that expel the water. And I didn't actually uh, view the video. Yeah, I can see that work. It's kind of yeah. a novel idea there. Yeah, it, it's one of those things I, your, yeah. Give you some ideas for your next uh, ro- robotics challenge there, Darren? Yeah, it could. Yeah, we're still trying to get an event where they let us use exploding bolts, but, yeah, we never get to. Well, that does it for Scuba the News. Didn't really have a deep amount of articles this week. And I have to apologize for everybody getting episodes edited. I am so far behind. Work has been kicking my butt. That's normally I I take my lunch time and edit. But when you work through lunch, you don't have a whole lot of time. So somehow I've got to get these up and out because... Starting to build up again. So, did anybody get any diving in? We had uh, Karen went to the uh, meet and greet. That's great. I think I uh, Bob Sweeney and Maggie were also there. It sounded like from seeing the post that it was a good time. Yeah, some of the, the pictures usual. were absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I saw the usual guys up there too, like like Dennis Wisnowski and Tim Yarnell were up there too. So they had, they had a decent crew up there. Mm-hmm. And then the food, it looked like they had some great food going on. Isn't that what you, you go to dive events for is the food? Yeah, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are familiar with uh, the meet and greet, but basically there's a one of the uh, Facebook groups is the uh, Great Lake Crew. Divers are mostly out of Ohio area, and they kind of focus on the uh, Gilboa Quarry, which is a uh, 
I don't know how many acres it is. It's probably a good 20 acres. It's a good-sized place. Got a maximum depth of 147 feet. They have a number of uh, sunken objects to explore out there. Airplanes, helicopter, a whole bunch of cars, lots and lots of boats that you'd expect. And actually, they have the usual things you expect to find, like a, a diving platform and lots of different things for training out there as well can have great visibility you know sometimes the visibility can be 60 70 feet out there other times it's uh you know can be two feet all depends upon the time of year and how busy it is it's one of the more popular diving attractions in this area of the midwest yeah a, a lot of, of uh yeah a lot of the dive shops will use that for the open water that's where i did my open water work for both my original certification also my advanced open water was was there um because it's something you it's you know they some shops will do the smaller inland uh lakes but if you don't hit them at the right time of the year you're taking new divers and put them in a uh, a pretty green soup uh when algae starts to bloom and uh visibility at Gobo is usually pretty good until you until people hit the bottom <laughs> it can be pretty green out there too it really just depends upon what weekend you're at you know it's a if it's a popular training weekend and they have a lot of open water classes going on. It, it, it can be soup out there. You know, yeah. if you go out there, you know, during the week, though, it's generally really nice. You know, you, you're year-round pretty nice out there. And Gilboa, I understand, doesn't ice over. So I think the place is open year-round, isn't it, Karen? Karen's kind of, she's been there more times than I have. So Karen says it was kicked up even deep, yeah. But, you know, you, you're never bored out there. There's plenty of stuff to see. Um yeah. Got to bring a buddy. I don't think they recognize the uh, solo diving out there. No, kind of they don't. Thing. So make sure you got a yeah. buddy out there with you. Yeah, and they've got a deep side and a shallow side. So if you're going to go in the deep side, uh, you have to get you, you have to get the access to that approved. You know, just having the pass won't allow you to dive the deep side. Uh, so expect to bring your logbook and have a history of diving deeper dives to be allowed on that deep section. You know, if you show up with a dive book and it's all uh, tropical warm dives in 30 feet of water, they're not going to let you go that deep side. They're also looking for proper gear. You have to have cold water regulators. Uh, yeah, they, they're trying to avoid people running into situations where they have free flows. Yeah, Karen's confirming that it's open all, almost year-round. And if you want to dive in the deep part, you have to uh, file a plan with management. Mm-hmm. She's t- saying that they do allow solo diving out there uh, with a with a dive plan. Is that correct, Karen? I know that's been a pretty hotly contested item out there about the solo. But, um, I I've seen a lot of the conversation. Looks like they don't allow solo diving out there. Karen's saying that implying they might, but um, don't don't plan on doing solo diving out there because <laughs> it's it's something which has uh, been accepted for a while, then been rejected for a while, and uh, if you're planning on being a solo diver, um, you might want to call first and see what, what their current plan is on that. So, but, uh, Yeah, yeah their, their, their website, if you want to know more about it, is divegilboa.com, and you just type it into a search engine, and you can also find it that way. Yeah, but, take a uh, look on If you're curious, take a look on uh, YouTube. There's a lot of videos on the place. It's a very popular place for uh, you know, shooting. The, 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 pretty much most of our divers in the Midwest have been there once or twice, and um, they stock it with fish. It's kind of cool. They have a huge uh, amount of, uh, a huge variety of fish in there. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know, everything from your bluegills and crappies and bass to catfish and um, paddlefish and even a, a lake sturgeon in there. I've never seen lake sturgeon, but I understand the, the lake sturgeon out there. Lots and lots of rainbow trout. We all stole them a steelhead. <laughs> There's a, it's kind of cool. You get down out there and the the fish will follow you because they know that you're a meal ticket and somewhere you got to have some food for them. It's kind of like paying your tribute when you're out there. And when you get around the school bus, that tends to be the <laughs> where most of the fish hang out at. And fishing is not permitted out there. Every year, uh, a handful of people get get arrested for fishing, but it's highly illegal to fish in the area. It's all private property, and that's their regulations. But the uh, fish are really, really cool. You know, they they come right up to you and they demand their tribute. So I hope you brought something yeah. with you. Oh, and I don't care how hot blooded you are, wear a hood when you go there, okay? Because <laughs> they can't resist nibbling on your ears. Okay, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm mentioning for a friend. Okay, but uh, if you go out there, wear a hood. Okay. <laughs> Karen says yeah. the fish are getting old, they're not many as they used to be. Well, I know as of two years ago, there was an awful lot of fish. I know Amy and I were up there for the fall meet and greet two years ago, and um, we got to get back out there. Yeah, it's 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 a good spot, and there's camping. Uh, you, they got camp spots there that you, of course, have to rent. Uh, but for for fe- feeding the fish, the best thing is to buy some of the the fish food, and then when your dive buddy's not looking, you just tuck it in a pouch there and sit back and enjoy. Yeah, that's one of the things which you, it's kind of your initiation out there is, um, you know, have your buddy open open the fish food up out there, but they will just mob you, okay, but cover your face, cover your mask, you don't want to, you know, have a, you know, a six pound steelhead not knock your mask off, you know. Yeah, I, I always, you know, when, when you see it, it's kind of like when you, uh, the beekeepers, where they're swarmed by the bees, just imagine the bees replaced with fish. Yeah, I've got a video on YouTube. Uh, you look for uh, scuba girl fish on there. You'll see where hit Amy out there, and and I, I I warned her, you know, cover her face, and she did. She did a real good job of it two years ago, and she she fed the fish, and she just instantly in a swarm. It's and it's cool, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 better to stand back and watch than to be in the swarm, though. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's cool. So we had the meet and greet going on. I think they had a, a high noon dive there in the river, didn't you, Mac? Well, actually, last week we did a Friday and a Saturday. Oh, both days. Yeah. And we, you know, it was ladies' day, basically. I think I had five ladies out there with me. So, hey, you guys, want, you know, started like having a harem. It was, it was pretty yeah. good. You, you were their escort. Yes, yes. Not gigolo, gigolo, escort. Yeah. Different, different. Different? It's... Yeah, we did good. Uh, the key item is the bottom is starting to uh, muck up. It's getting that time of year. We're getting more algae bloom. And the leaves are coming down. And you know what the leaves do when they hit the bottom? You can't yeah, see dead leaves squat. They stay there. Cover everything up. We did have a, a fisherman come by and says, do you guys dive downstream too? And we said, why? He says, well, my boat sank. And um, we, we were curious, how did your boat sink? Well, I had to sort of dock to the side, but I forgot to take the to put the plug in. And it filled uh. with water, and it's not there when I went back to get it. 
Now, I'm assuming it was not with an engine because if it had been an engine, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, well, was but, he in a boat when he asked you? No, he had come up. They had been uh, last week. Uh, that place was jammed with boaters. And the guys coming back were all smiles. They were doing, they were making a killing out of fish. And when we left, we had people come in and, you know, want our spots. When we left, I'm looking in my mirror. You got guys in chest waders out there fly fishing. Fly, wow. I haven't seen and fly fishing never, in there. I've never seen that. No. So I asked how many guys were using crayfish, and a lot of them looked down like, I wouldn't use a crayfish. Because mm. yeah. we told them <laughs> that if you fish with crayfish, you're going to get them. Yeah. 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 Crayfish and fly fishermen did quite work too. Uh... Yeah, I yeah, imagine well, right now with, with, the, with the cooling off, guessing the uh, the salmon just coming in. Uh, this is the usually stack up outside the heads until uh starts to cool off and then they, they then they the upstream to spawn the salmon come up to spawn and then the uh, steelhead come in shortly after because the steelhead know that the salmon are gonna lay a lot of eggs they come in east that's what you're seeing starting shaping up right now then of course the steelhead will stay in the river all all went along um, actually a, a steelhead is a rainbow trout Rainbow trout stays in the river. They retain that pinkish color. But if they get out in Lake Michigan or something about Great Lake water, it takes a lot of color out. They call it steelhead now. They're all kind of gunmill. Anyway, yeah, you'll see a lot of them in the river, and that's what the fishermen are chasing at. You know, a highly sought for sport fish. Well, is there any, any other diving that's been going on? As if that isn't enough? Well, I'll let you say I've, I've got out, but I, but I haven't been able to. Uh, I don't know. I've had plans a number of times, but it seems that the uh, fall weather has set in very quickly. Uh, we've had the boat packed up you know, several weekends in a row to go out. Just been, been blown out. Out too well for us. Uh, did go out and uh, we did recover a couple of buoys. Um, out um, two weeks ago, collect um, we off the Havana. Actually. About, about three weeks ago, brought that in. John, Kirk, Jason, Amy, and myself brought that in. Then the um, the Rockaway buoy uh, pulled that one in uh, about just over a week ago. That one again, kind of complicated there, but uh, we did bring that one in finally. So the buoys are in here in the southwest. I've seen the posts for the uh, West Mission Water Preserve just to the north of us. And they've been bringing theirs in. I don't think they have all of theirs in yet. I know that Dan Straits is working on his too. Um, kind of had some issues with the uh, storms coming in early and surprising us. And uh, a few of us have had buoys get knocked loose and had to do some chasing them down. But, uh, it's part of the deal, <laughs> you know, when these uh, fall storms show up early. Kind of, you know, wreaks havoc on our buoys sometimes. We're getting through it. And season's coming to an end. Yeah. So it makes you plan more for next year. Or the the winter dive season. Start oh, yeah. start start uh upgrading gear so you're in shape and have the warmth to be able to do some ice dives. Yeah, it's just a shame you, you kinda have to hang it up for the big little water. You you might get a day out there. In fact I 
had some interesting conversations on Facebook with people who uh, plan on doing Great Lakes diving here in the late fall. And they see that we do it and they wonder why they can't do it. And and we, we get to do occasionally some big water diving up here because we live up here and we watch the weather. And yeah, occasionally you'll find a nice day, you know, when, um, <laughs> in, even in December, you know, where you can get out and go, go dive the big water. Problem is just that those days are not the norm and you're going to have you know, 30 days of, you know, way too rough, rough of water to go diving out to the one that you actually can get out. So just don't plan on a lot of big water diving up here after, I don't know, about mid-September. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to book a trip where you're going to come up on a Friday and think you're going to get a dive in before Monday. Uh, you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We had yeah. some guys that were doing some dive, you know, trip up October and, talk him out of you might get lucky odds are not i mean we've been blown out day after day after day i know that one of the trips we went buoy um jim came with us um jim schultz he's young podcast here and i was hoping we could kind of run the lead of the land because the uh water oh the buoy report because you know we have weather buoys out here to tell us wave height and uh the buoy report made it look like it probably wasn't going to happen, but like I say, sometimes you can get close to the, close to the land and uh, get some protection. And I thought we would manage, but uh, nope, not at all. We got out there and it was getting worse. And <laughs> I'm not going to say how high the waves were because you guys will laugh at me for being out there. <laughs> you know, we we went to Pierhead, said this is not working, came back in, went back out with um, John the next day. And uh, nothing to it, you know. Easy pickings the next day, but it's just all a matter of what the is doing that day. So, but it is nice. So we we do have a lot better apps now for uh, forecasting the conditions, you know. And, uh, around here we have a number of weather buoys that are part of the um, oh, what is it? The the NOAA weather system. You can actually um, pick up the current conditions and via an app for them I, I have it on my phone here what's that that's much an app but you can put put, put uh, shortcuts on your phone screen so it's real nice for getting details on it here. I can pull the one right South Haven and Great Lakes Observing Systems that's what it is put out by Limnotech but I'm looking at the Cook buoy right now which is out in front of um, power plant in Benton, just south of Benton Harbor, telling me that uh, currently we have uh, oh, waves of uh, two to three. We actually could go diving right now if you want to. It'd be a little rough, but if you guys want to go for a night dive, yeah, probably not. Um, but you know, the wave heights are kind of our main when forecasting dives. Is, uh, diving in three-footers is pretty uncomfortable. We'll do it sometimes, but uh, you can be pretty hard enough to go for a dive in so try to keep yeah yeah three feet you know in the summer where the water's warm you know it can it can be fun um you know it it also depends is it building or falling you know if it's building up you don't want to go down with three footers and then come up with five or six yeah Uh, yeah not cool but between that i use the the iWindsurf app which is real good forecasting 
direction and speed and you know weather forecast has come an awful lot in the last five years just how easy it is to have the tip of your fingers on your smart device to tell you what it's going to be like out there well mac do you have a dive safety story for this week well uh if you remember last week's safety message we talked about do the right thing i said the goal of decision making is quite simple doing the right thing at the right time we also stated that Good decision-making helps us to avoid circumstances that lead to tough choices. And that's when we talked about, hence the superior divers user superior judgment to avoid situations requiring the use of their superior skills. Now, in doing this, we touched upon another item to be aware of and to avoid. And that was normalization of deviance. So what is that exactly? We'll talk about that. Now, what they're talking about is there is a, or this is a gradual process through which practices or standards become acceptable. Now, I would argue this phenomenon is one single biggest danger that experienced divers have when deciding to do a dive a specific way. As an example, last week we spoke of a young and inexperienced diver being presented with an opportunity to do a deep dive. They're presented with a seemingly simple choice, do or not to do it. There and then, the diver thinks of the planned dive immediately before them. An astute diver will be aware of the immediate risk of choosing to accept the deeper than normal dive. The diver could even be forgiven for being swayed by the argument as to why it might be acceptable. Operational pressures, ingrained attitudes can be difficult, bordering on impossible, for an individual to resist, and so frequently divers relent and do as requested of them. You can do it. But the precedent it sets for divers and organizations, such as charter boats and or other organizations you may represent, is unconsidered. And accepting the dive today, the behavior is normalized for the diver and the dive partner. Making a decision, a different decision, the following day becomes much more difficult. Normalization of deviance can be incremental. In completing a deep dive with no pony bottle today, the question can be asked, why don't we go without a pony bottle tomorrow? It's the same type of dive. Every repetition of a violation allows the boundary to be pushed that much further, and every time may step closer to the eventual accident or incident. Quickly, this trend spreads, uh, spreads beyond just the issue at hand. In breaking one limit, you, de dare, you de declare carte blanche on breaking others. Now, what about insidious items? You know, it's defined as insidious, producing no injury or harmless, or not likely to give it rouse or strong feelings of hostility. Well, insidious little items, I suppose. I'm curious, do you consider overrunning your tank VIP date an issue? How about your tank hydro date? Do you let that slip? Are you really performing proper spear or scuba gear maintenance, especially before the after the winter break, if you took one, in the summer. Now, the common industry practice concerning gear service, especially regulators, is a one-year rule, i.e. the belief that divers should have their equipment service annually, regardless of the number of times it was used during the year. Now, this was postulated, or this postulate was formulated back in 1950s, and the reason behind it then was some of the regulated parts, such as valve seals, O-rings, were made of rubber which would stretch, decay, and after repeated use, stop sealing properly. Metal and plastic parts could also corrode and break or become fragile 
rather quickly. Now, today, the situation is really quite different. While it holds true that rarely used equipment needs regular service as much or even more than equipment that seems that sees more frequent use, the one-year rule may not be as accurate anymore because modern materials generally last much longer than those used in the past. The topic of how scuba gear should be serviced became somewhat of a gray area, though many divers still have their gear serviced annually. Others see regular servicing as a money-making scheme and go for years without professional equipment inspection. So, how do you find the middle ground and stay safe without overspending on servicing? Well, number one is you can specify. Specify whether or not you want an inspection, and an adjustment, or overhaul. If your regulator isn't misbehaving, you can more than likely ask for an inspection or a bench check to save some money. Because during that bench check or inspection, if they find something, well, then you justified spending the extra money. Now, if you want to maintain your warranty, totally a different animal. Because maintaining warranty generally requires one to follow the manufacturer's instructions, which quite often is annually, and if not annually, at least every other two years. Now, let's get back to normalization of deviance. Normalization of deviance quickly propagates beyond going that little bit over and limits in all areas of an operation become increasingly blurred. In many ways, using the slippery slope analogy, it's an overused cliche, of course, but unfortunately, it's perfectly apt here, not only because it's easy to begin falling down the slope, but because it's not impossible to climb back up. Now, this ultimate is the, you know, is the harm of diving without safest air supply. Beyond the real and present risk you're exposed to during the dive, the culture you return to suffers immensely. Normalization of deviancy is both cause and effect for diving accepting and exceeding the limits of safe diving practices. How often have you done or allowed something to be done just because it was just a little bit over the standard safety margin? Food for thought. Some good points. Thank you, Mac. Yeah. It, yeah. it is indeed a is indeed a slippery slope. Yeah. And if yeah. you do it on one item, and you're successful, and you do it the next day, you just reinforce. Well, my norm now is different, and my safety norm, my safety aspect just went down. And, I, and I've seen where divers have kind of just they become. They get used to push the limits so much that they kind of become almost oblivious to the to the the risk of that. Yeah, you know, scuba diving when it's done properly is a very safe sport. We all know that, but you have to do it proper, which means, as you say, you know, getting your 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 gear serviced and inspected every year. Um, you know, making sure that you have cold water regulars, making sure that your you know equipment is up up to the task that you're going to do. You wearing the proper amount of insulation for the depth. Uh, there's, there's an infinite number of variables here, but as long as you are diving the way you've been taught in your, by your certification agency and keeping your gear serviced and doing it properly, it's a safe, it's a, it's a very safe hobby. It's when you start getting into that slippery slope gray area of going beyond what is acknowledged as safe diving practices that you get into trouble. So Mac, you're running the money with all this here much well the key item there is it 
is the same for many, many sports and activities. Flying is a big one. The biggest one factor for people crashing their airplanes, private, is number one is they run out of fuel. I mean, you dip your tanks before you start. You got your fuel tank indicators. When in doubt, you stop the damn thing and you get fuel. But people go a little bit wet and they well, I did it the last time I could make from here to there. Well, maybe last time you didn't have that headwind. Or maybe you flew at a lower altitude this time, so you sucked more gas. But you got yourself into that, well, I did it before, I can do it again. And sometimes that is all you need to get yourself dangerously hurt, if not killed. And I also have a shipwreck of the week that will go very Excellent. well with your okay. uh, staying within safety margin. Back. So I will talk to you about the uh, Man of Stee. Take more information here from uh, MichiganShipwrecks.org. The um, Man of Stee is not a very well-known shipwreck. In the lakes. Uh, it's actually not even in the Great Lakes. It's uh, it's in Spring Lake, which is up by Grand Haven. Uh, it was a Great Lakes vessel. Um, just it, it was it was docked by Johnson Boiler Works in 1914. Fire broke out. Um, it's your typical uh, package freighter, um, say about 190 feet long. Um, at the boat, let me see the specs here. Okay, yeah, length of 202 feet, beam of 32 feet, depth of 21, 22 feet. Um, it's a uh, it's your, your typical package freighter, meaning it, it's not meant to carry coal, it's not meant to carry rock, it's meant to carry barrels and bags and items that are brought in um, with what they call break bulk freight. Any event, uh, 1914, the evening, the uh, crew is awakened by the sound of crackling and uh, hastily exited the boat. There was no loss of life, but most of the crew got off the boat with just their pajamas. Uh, boat was tied up to the dock in Johnson Boiler Works, and they cut the lines, and the wind took it to the other side of, of uh, Spring Lake, ended up resting against a sandbar, and that's where, it, where the fire really took over. And it uh, burned quite, <laughs> it's quite a spectacle when it burned. There's a lot of find online of it, mostly at uh, MSRA's page here on the app. Um, it sank right alongside the sandbar. And that area there, it goes very abruptly from being about 35 feet deep to uh, 3 feet. So obviously it picked up against the sandbar and going further in the shallows, and that's where she, where she chose to go down. Now, Sounds like an easy squeezy dive at thirty about thirty five feet deep. And I've heard you know a number of folks talking with plans on diving this. And this is one which is really not a good idea for any but the most experienced divers to to, to dive this here. Um people get in trouble here because you assume at thirty five feet deep that heck that's an open water dive, you know? Doesn't take into account the fact that all Spring Lake seldom has more than two-foot visibility. It doesn't take into the fact that this boat had a, an internal framework on it. It's a wooden-hulled boat, but this particular builder, 
which was, oh, let's see, Jacob Randall, Jacob H. Randall for the Graham and Morton Transportation Company. Yeah, but uh, they they built an internal metal framework on this. So when the boat sank, you still had this massive large cage there that uh, you could easily get trapped. In fact, uh, Bob Underhill has mentioned this article. He's talked about his last dive on the wreck, and he ended up getting pinned up against one of the heavy metal beams, and, and they used to refer to the ship as the old razor blade because the uh, iron framework inside was very sharp, very jagged, and you slice your wetsuit for you if you were unlucky as well. Don't. Like I say, this is something which sounds like an easy, squeezy dive here. It's not. You have to look at the other details of the wreck as well. So you know, this is one which is not recommended. It's, it's a great story. You find a lot of details of it there. But uh, don't always just look at a wreck and say, hey, depth makes an easy dive. There's a lot of other fee- other factors involved. And this is one which is not recommended to dive. So uh, there you have it. Manistee from 1914 in Spring Lake. Stay away from gold. there. Yeah. Good tip. Well, do we have anything we want to plug before we get on out of here? Well, you want to hit uh, the water and try out your dry suit? We're going to do that the 17th high noon dive at Forest Beach in uh, Ward of Leet. Come on out and uh, have a safe time of reacquainting yourself with your dry suit. And we will, of course, always be observing social distancing and other good practices. Excellent. How about you, Kevin? I'd like to encourage our listeners to always support your local dive center. We like to uh, we always enjoy those online deals, but those online deals aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Additionally, uh, support your local libraries. Opportunity you have to vote for a millage to put a little more pocket, a little more operating funds in their pocket, the better. There's all kinds of research materials and good, solid written information that has not been digitized and is not going to be digitized. And once those libraries are gone, that information will be lost forever. So please support your libraries. Well, are you – oh, I I, I didn't do our pitch. We're we're hitting that time of year where we have to renew all our hosting and services that enable us to keep this podcast going. So – we understand with this this year, not everybody's able to contribute. If you can't, we could appreciate some of those five-star reviews, uh, share the podcast with a friend, provide some feedback. Those are all some great things you can do. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. We've got our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Uh, send us an email, the show at scuba obsessed.com. And, uh, if you do have the ability to provide some financial support, hit our website, click on over the Patreon link, and $3 or more gets early access to the show notes and uh, helps keep us going. So it is that time. Are you guys ready? I'm putting down. Bring it on. Do it. So, so, And we call them bad for a reason. Just remember that. <laughs> Three young friends seeking a fortune adventure together uh, to Egypt where a new pyramid had been discovered. Upon arriving at the pyramid, they immediately told to leave as the site had already been evacuated, excavated. The friends were not willing to concede, uh, look for a different way in and find an entrance never before used. 
is through this evidence that they find a secret passage way, one that is made to look like a dead end, but it truly turns into a hall. Uh, they venture around this turn and into a great room. The room in the room are torches, a sign that inside the room warns, he who lights this shall burn to death in Egyptian hieroglyphics, of course. The first friend takes a torch, lights the end. The friend ventures into the room to another. The second room is a small lake with a small canoe, able to seat three. The canoe is uh, a paddle that reads, he who uses this shall die a watery death. The second friend takes his paddle and uses it to guide the three of them to the other side of the lake through a third and final door. This last room is a great atrium filled with heaps upon heaps of golden artifacts and jewels. The three friends rush in and come to a golden sarcophagus. The third friend looks at it and sees that it has a warning. The first man that touches treasure will die a most horrible death, written on its exterior. The third friend, giving a message no one cares, proceeds to pick at as much gold as he can. His friends quickly follow suit. Many months later, after the friends have returned home with their loot and are used to a lucrative lives, the three friends receive troubling news. The first friend has been sleeping with his mansion and caught fire and burned to the ground, killing him. Remembering the warning, he calls the second friends, and they both laugh it off. A month later, the third friend is watching the news when the breaking story comes on, and it's the second friend who's been out in his yacht. The boat is unexpectedly capsized, killing him. The third friend saw this and grew terribly fearful. Assuming he had a month uh, left before whatever horror befall him, the third friend sold many of his belongings to afford the most secure underground bunker. He then used his remaining fortune to buy incredibly high-tech security system cameras all over, 30 armed guards stationed at the entrance. The third friend spent a month in the bunker. 30 days pass, and the night was falling when the third friend looked at the security cameras. Outside the bunker at the entrance was an expanse of land save one object. All the security guards were mysteriously gone, and just a frame was a silhouette of a sarcophagus. The third friend panicked. Rushing to the door, he pushed all manner of furniture before it a fridge, a bookshelf, his bed, and his desk. But once he had placed the final barricade, a great pounding came to the door. Looking to security footage, the sarcophagus had begun to float, as was using itself as a battering ram. To the third friend's horror, the door began to crack. With a tremendous boom, the door and all furniture was blasted away. The third friend screamed, and in the doorway floated the sarcophagus. He ran through the bunker, stalked by the sarcophagus. Friend jumped into the bathroom, locked the door behind him. He sat in the toilet and cried. Boom, the sarcophagus was there, breaking through the bathroom door. The third friend panicked, running to the sink. The sarcophagus inched forward. The friend picked up the bottle of shampoo and threw it. The sarcophagus kept coming. He threw the can of shaving cream. The sarcophagus was in ten feet of him now. He threw a tube of toothpaste. The sarcophagus was in the arm's length. The friend made one final attempt. He reached in the cabinet, grabbed a plastic bottle, filled with green liquid, and he threw it. The sarcophagus fell to the ground and turned to dust. The man marveled at this. Looking to the last thing he had thrown, he picked it up and thought, all I had to do was take some NyQuil and the coffin would stop. That's good. Some people are going to lie like That was good. Oh, all right. and, and they weren't a sponsor either. <laughs> oh, yeah. Smart. <laughs> yeah, Karen, that was a long way to get to the punchline. Yes, that was. That's a, I. That's almost like the purple phantom joke. 
<laughs> if you haven't heard the Purple Phantom joke, look it up sometime. I'm not going to go into it, <laughs> but it'll get you. It'll get you. You can find it online, I'm sure. So on that one, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time, dude. out of here oh and i can't type still had to get it gotta spell them right go away oh did i not i I thought i spelled craig c-r-a yeah i spelled lee wrong put a j instead of an i there if i figured it